You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. This is episode 735 of the Dressage Radio Show, the official podcast of the United States Dressage Federation on the Horse Radio Network, brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products. Today, we're catching up with the movers and the shakers in the para-dressage community. First, we're chatting with USPEA's interim president, Tina Wentz. And the 2023 USDF Volunteer of the Year and USCF board member, athlete representative, and para-dressage, Ellie Bremer. This is Noah Ratner from Sherwood, Oregon. And this is Reese Koffler-Stanfield from Georgetown, Kentucky. And you're listening to the Dressage Radio Show. And here we are again, my friend. Happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. I know, day number three. (laughs) (laughs) We are still here, everyone. We are still here after three dates, and I'm raising a glass to you from the West Coast. Uh, and I said l'chaim to you on the East Coast and a happy Hanukkah. It's the sixth night tonight that we're recording this. Uh, Hanukkah will have officially come to an end by the time our listeners get to it. But uh, yep. I hope your holidays, how are they How are they coming along for you? Well, my holidays, we enjoyed Hanukkah dinner. It is a tradition in our family to do, mm. to celebrate Hanukkah for my father and for my grandma. Uh, so uh, I was texting Noah on, on <laughs> uh, I, I'm actually Catholic, so it's, it's a little bit funny, but um, we've always done Hanukkah dinner. It's a tradition and I'm not going to be home for Christmas this year. So I actually pack up and go to Wellington on Monday. Uh, and no, I'm ready. I'm not going to lie. Like <laughs> it is an operation though, to pack up and, and move your whole barn. It, Migration it, it, is I, coming. It is happening. And, and it is also, you know, it's just this well choreographed situation that starts to happen and it just becomes a little bit of a blur and we're like, okay, mm-hmm. You know, the horses all have to be clipped and we do shots and we do teeth and just the whole and just the packing in general. And it, it's a lot. I think people don't really realize. And I try to start early. Uh, we're pretty packed to the point where we can be at the moment. And then we just have to hold until literally the last day. And then we literally ride the horses, clean the tack and put it in the trunks. And that's kind of how it goes. So, oh, my um, gosh. Yeah, it's a lot. It's it's a you lot. Know, and, and I close my farm. Like, it's a lot that happens, but it's good. You go up and down the coast, and I go coast to coast. So <laughs> I know, <laughs> we're doing, I know. We're, we're doing I, the migration just in different directions. Yes, we are. And <laughs> and I can't imagine, I mean, putting horses on planes to get them to Florida. Like, it it really is a huge migration for everybody. It's, it's time-consuming. It's, it's expensive. It's just all the things. But... Uh, I can't wait till we all get down there and it's such a wonderful community and you and I will be able to like actually hang out together mm-hmm. and, and I don't know, we may even do the show together. An, I don't know. We an in-person date. What, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, we did. So we just got back from the um, USDF convention. We did actually have breakfast together. That was mm-hmm. lovely. That was super <laughs> fun to, to, to raise a glass to, to the show and, and uh, new beginnings and all the things. So Noah, tell us a little bit about you had a, a significant role at convention. I, I did. I had a different type of role. So what were you up to well, there? 
You know, I, I don't want to throw any shade on anyone, but uh, I think that uh, I think that you absolutely have a very important role as a delegate. And I think that you shouldn't you shouldn't be shy about um, or afraid of flexing that um, being a delegate <laughs> for for the Board of Governors is absolutely something that is imperative and carrying votes for um, being proxy for someone that's equally important. So thank you to all the delegates that are out there that came. Explain yeah. what that happens, because that's some confusion on, on what happens with that. So just like in normal government, um, we have uh, representatives for the individual group member organizations, um, the GMOs that make up our sport. So in every region, we have multiple GMOs. Um, that are active, that have members, and they are represented by the GMO delegates. And then uh, within uh, the same community, we also have participating, wow, can't say that, participating <laughs> member delegates, PM delegates, mm -hmm. um, that represent uh, that geographic area and members that are not parts of uh, of GMOs. And, uh, and those individuals are voted into the USDF governance um, every year, and they represent the region um, and their um, the votes that are associated associated with that. And when we come to convention, we have the Board of Governors, which is usually on the last two days of convention. And uh, and the, that's when the, the PM and the GMO delegates uh, actually get to cast votes um, and influence um, changes to the bylaws and changes to, um, to some of the policies and procedures for our sport um, and do things like review um, our, our membership dues, um, which was one of the things that we talked about this year at convention. That it's a really important role. So um, and we have like hundreds of delegates from across the country come yeah. to convention to represent their voice from their community and the, the members that they represent. And so, Noah, just because I'm not quite sure, because we have a we have an awesome Molly. She she does the PM delegates in our region and she basically mm -hmm. just like calls in April and says, are, are you going to run? Are you interested? So <laughs> tell, tell everybody kind of that process, because you do have to be paying attention a little bit if you are interested. So tell people how um, you know this because you're a regional director. So this is, I think, part of, of your role. So explain to people oh, what that means. She's putting me on the spot tonight. All right. I'm so sorry. Let's make, I let's, know. Let's see, let's see if I don't make a fool of myself. No, so, I'm sorry. Uh, no. No, so every year um, we have a nominating committee. It's one of the uh, one of the committees within our organization, um, within USDF. And every year, each region elects their PM delegates. Um, and so um, the person, Molly, that you're talking about is your region's nominating committee representative. And their role is to promote uh, the, the delegates and identifying people who are interested in, in representing their geographic area um, on a national stage. Um, and uh, and being the person that represents the votes for their area. So um, we're actually, we're just at the tail end of this year's um, PM delegate cycle. Um, and so the nominating committee gets a little bit of a break after convention, but um, right at the beginning of the new year, they will start their quest for finding who is going to be um, running for PM delegates. And then if there are any vacancies within the um, executive board or um, any other positions that are relevant, to uh, your region, um, that's also the same person is responsible for that. So um, in 2024 is the uh, even regions have their nominations um, and have those positions open on the executive board. So region two, four, six, and eight next year will be up for election. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you want more information about that, just so that I don't risk saying anything wrong, you can go on to usdf.org, click on the About USDF and on the Governance tab, and then down to Nominating. And you can learn all about how you can become active in the organization as a PM delegate, or if you're interested in going a step further um, and joining the executive board, all the information is right there. And we'd love to have you. um, We'd love to have you, yes. Yes. The more voices and the more perspective we can get, the the further we can go with our organization um, and driving it for the future. So, okay, well, scroll back in time. Like five minutes ago, you asked me what I was doing at convention, and I feel like it was a lot. Uh, We covered a lot of ground this year. Um, I was there um, representing, um, obviously, Region 6, um, which is uh, my region at home, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Western Montana, and Alaska. And we had awesome, um, awesome conversations. We had great regional meetings. Um, I feel like we had a lot going on in the regional meetings. Uh, We actually have our regional meeting um, again tonight for people that weren't able to be there in person at convention. So we'll do that tonight over Zoom. But we also uh, we also got to meet all of the candidates that were running uh, for the director at large positions that were up for up for election um, on this cycle. And mm-hmm. so uh, we heard from, I think, five total candidates came in and, and talked about their passion for dressage and their passion for the director at large positions that they were running for. And I think that's really great because. Even though, you know, we only ended up um, electing three individuals out of the people that ran, Mm -hmm. it's great to see that there's so much interest and excitement in our sport and that people want to be involved. And I applaud I applaud all of the candidates that ran, um, you know, for uh, for those governance roles. And I really at the end of the day. Um, you know, it's great that we have, uh, you know, a democratic process and that we have, um, you know, an election for our sports governance. But. Anytime we have one of those and we have people that don't get elected, I always want to tell them we have so many other areas for you to get involved. Don't let mm-hmm. that deter you. So if right. you don't make it the first time, definitely keep trying. But in the yes. interim, we will <laughs> gladly we will gladly use your talents elsewhere. So yes. uh, pl- yep. please don't feel like we're telling you that we don't want your help. <laughs> right, right. And I think that's so important. Again, there's been some questions like, how do you get involved with USDF? And there are so many roles and so many roles that need to be filled. and a lot goes on at convention, which is great, uh, but there's lots that happens all year round. And I think it's just good. Um, you know, I, I have been lucky coming in as a PM delegate. You kind of get to see what's going on. You and I were also there for the USEF meeting. So that mm-hmm. happens also during convention. So that starts the convention off. Um, and we were there for our meetings for that. And then we transitioned to USDF. Uh, which was great. So it was a whole week of meetings, but it was a lot of fun. And, you know, convention is a little bit of time. You think you're going to have more time than you do to talk. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You were like, we we got together early. We're like, let's go like Wednesday morning for breakfast because we knew it would get get busy. Uh, But it it is great. And then, you know, my my student, uh, Catherine, Dr. Catherine, who's been on the show before, she got her bronze medal. So then I transitioned to, you know, being a coach and celebrating uh, successes. She was the one that came out to Omaha. And uh, we had a big time. We went to Cirque du Soleil and we celebrated her medal. And uh, it was really, really fun. So um, it is a great time. I didn't get to go to Cirque and I heard so many of our members that went and made a night of it. And I think that's, that's one of the best parts is, you know, we, we have to get, we have to get down 
and dirty and get work done. And we have to do the governance part. But it's so much fun. I mean, I was in the bar till the wee hours of the morning talking <laughs> with with members and delegates and, and people from my region and everywhere. And it's just so much fun to see people out of the barn. And I mean, we love our horses. Don't get us wrong. But like, yes. it's yes. great to see people just enjoying time with one another. And, um, yeah. and I think the 50th anniversary of the USDF and being in the state of Nebraska for convention mm-hmm. um, was especially especially cool. Uh, we had yummy cake during uh, the yes. board of governors um, to celebrate. Mm-hmm. That was pretty cool. Um, and, and Omaha's you know, cool. Omaha's Omaha, great. Like there's yeah. lots of good restaurants and things that are walkable and they have a great park. Like we had a lot of fun, but no, I have to ask, like you were the reason I, I even knew Cirque was happening. So I didn't even know nice. you didn't know. Like, nice. I was like, I thought you're going, but then the, the question was, Noah, what did you do that night that we all went to Cirque? Oh, I think your brother. uh, Yeah, I I think I went ice skating. (laughs) You did. did. How's your brother doing? (laughs) Uh, He's okay. Um, He did not dislocate his shoulder. Um, He did go to the hospital to have it looked at. Apparently, people (laughs) over the age of 30, ice skating is kind of a high risk sport. So, um, yeah. I I was like, we went ice skating. I was like, you what? And he's like, my brother's hurt. I was like, I don't even know what to say. Like, yeah, there was yeah. there was a lot of stuff that I got to see it in two states. That was super oh, fun. Yeah, Iowa yep. and Nebraska. There's a bridge there that we we stood on. That was super fun in the middle of the river. Uh, that was great. Yeah, it was a well, really fun trip. While you were down there standing on two different states at the same time and going to Cirque du Soleil, um, we also had um, USDF had a 50th anniversary like soiree night. And uh, we went we went out um, to I think it's called Beer Can Alley. And um, there may be some videos and some TikTok loops and reels and whatever they whatever they call them of people doing some line dancing and getting down like it was a good old time. Like <laughs> it was a good time. It was a good time. No, I think it was great. And then, so after convention, I, so I, we're going to have a segment of where in the world is Noah? So where, mm. where did you go after? What are, what are you been up to? Well, uh, it's been a busy couple weeks. I actually yeah. was sitting here for a second. I'm like, mm, where are we? Um, yeah. no, we, after Omaha, um, I went home and touched base for a minute. Um, and I think it was 20 hours to be exact. Yeah, I was and say, then I, Got on a plane and flew to Orlando and went to Ocala for um, the most recent leg of the World Cup qualifying series, which was at the World Equestrian Center this past weekend. And then I jumped on a plane on Sunday night and I flew home to touch base and change clothes in my suitcase. And I am presently in Palm Springs for the thermal CDI World Cup qualifying competition, which is the last CDIW for the 2023 year. And before the 2024 <laughs> cycle starts, uh, all these athletes are trying to qualify for the um, the 2024 FEI World Cup dressage finals, which will be in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia in 2024. So yeah. the, the race is on. The race is on. So just give us a brief. How did it go in Ocala at, at WEC? Because at, that's oh, the new facility. Like, tell us what happened yep. there. You know, it is a stunning venue, and uh, every time I go there, they're making huge improvements to it as if it's even possible. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I hadn't been there um, in their outdoor spaces yet, and so all of the competitions that I've attended there and, and been working at 
were all held indoors. And so this event was held outside in the dressage stadium, um, which I think is pretty cool um, that that they specifically call it their dressage stadium, which makes Mm -hmm. me feel like we have permanence in our sport, which is pretty cool. Um, And that we're relevant. Love that. Um, Uh, Even better. (laughs) <laughs> yep. And they're even they're even building more dressage spaces for us at WEC um, in Ocala, which I think is great because that means that there's investment in the sport. Um, and so kudos to them for what they're doing and, and the infrastructure that they are building for us. Um, but it was great. The competition was excellent. It was a full class of uh, CDI World Cup qualifier starters. Um, so uh, that was great to see tons and tons of Grand Prix rides and really good quality Grand Prix rides as well. And uh, and then we had a full field move forward to the freestyle, um, which means that it's super competitive because mm-hmm. um, only um, I think it's only the top 15 advance okay. forward to the musical freestyle. And so, um, you know, that really makes people have to work to get there. And yeah. um, I think yeah. that's good because that that will also help grow our sport. Yeah. So uh, it was fun, um, fun to see people. Uh, I saw Efi and Tanya Strasser. Um, and so it's always good to see our Canadian friends because that's kind of like the the uh, the the bell ringing that uh, the season is the winter season's mm-hmm. about to begin as you yep. see Tanya and Evie at a show. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then uh, we saw uh, Pablo Gomez Molina was there from Spain. Um, and uh, so again, you know, we're seeing some of the some of the foreign riders that are starting to show back up um, on the competition scene in Florida. So you know, like real winter so, season, it's coming, and we're getting coming. there. It's coming. So, well, I love but it, it was it was so cool. We um not not uh, we got we got to celebrate our American riders because we had yes. um, most of the Pan Am team was there. Um, right. I even I bumped into Julio twice. Uh, <laughs> so he's he had the gold aura just glowing around oh, him still. Oh, I love it. Um, but uh, so cool to see uh, all of our our Pan Am athletes um, back home and uh, and back in the ring and they're they're grinding away um, as we're looking towards Paris. So it's coming hard and fast. Coming, I know it's crazy. Well, and we we hope this week we can't wait for an update on what happens in thermal. Like I love it. You're you're our on site reporter, literally <laughs> live from the scene. Let from the scene. Well, we have a great show for everybody today. After this com- uh, commercial break from Kentucky Performance Products, we're coming back with Teen Events. Frequently Asked Questions, brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products. Is it necessary to feed additional fat or oil to my horse when I supplement with a natural vitamin E powder like Elevate? No, it is not necessary to provide additional fat or oil to your horse when supplementing with the natural vitamin E contained in Elevate Maintenance Powder. A typical horse will consume enough fat from their diet to support the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins. An exception to the rule would be a horse that is severely malnourished or one that has a medical condition that interferes with fat absorption. Most horse people don't consider hay and pasture as sources of dietary fat, but they are. For example, mixed grass pasture contains between 2 and 4% fat, depending on the variety of grass. Hays contain between 1.5 to 3% fat. If your horse is eating 15 pounds of hay, that diet is providing from 1 quarter to 1 half a pound of fat per day. You can learn more about Elevate and Natural Vitamin E at kppusa.com. Got questions about your feeding program? We can help. Email Karen at questions at kppusa.com. 
Well, tonight we are so happy to have Tina Wentz, who is the interim president of the U.S. PEA or United States Para Equestrian Association. Tina, welcome to the show. Thanks, Reese. It's really great to be here. Uh, appreciate you having me. Oh, we're thrilled to have you because we have lots of exciting things happening in Para, and we really wanted to highlight it. But Tina, can you start the interview? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, boy, that's the hardest thing. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, interim USBEA president. I'm on the USEF sports committee and working as a para dressage selector towards Paris. Uh, I started out as a national classifier back in 1996. That's how I first got involved uh, with my son, Jonathan. And then have just uh, gradually, I also was uh, on part of USPEA, a good friend of Hope Hands, and when it was first formed and have been on it since the beginning. I did not know that you were a classifier, Tina. That is so cool. And it's I can't believe um, it's been so many years uh, that uh, that I know personally, Jonathan, and got to know him when he was riding and getting ready for the London Olympics. And so I was so excited when we when we were deciding on who our next guest uh, was going to be for the show. And I said, let's talk to Tina Wentz. So uh, we're thrilled to have you on the show tonight. Tell me a little bit about uh, what happened at convention this year um, relevant to the paradressage world. Well, you know, I just want to say it was so fun to be at the convention and to be back in the dressage community, which is where we started. I put Jonathan on a horse at two years old for physical therapy. I'm a physical therapist is my background and uh, never dreaming what it would evolve into. And, you know, Jonathan started riding for fun and tried his hands in many things, showmanship, equitation, jumping, vaulting, and found out about the Paralympics. And that was it. He said, I'm going. And, you know, he started showing dressage at the local dressage clubs, became very involved with them, uh, both the Dallas and the Houston dressage clubs. And we couldn't have done it without them. They took him on, helped him. He became very involved in the GMOs. Uh, he loved competing in the junior young rider team dressage competitions at the shows, and he worked towards year-end awards and scholarships. So, uh, you know, the dressage community just was a huge part of um, Jonathan's life and my life, too. And so it was so great to kind of come full circle and be back there at their 50th anniversary, no less. So it that, was, that was it was a really it was special. a real party I'd say and it was so much fun to to rub shoulders with you and uh, and we have a great picture of you and I together um, at the Adequad convention there in Omaha it was super cool <laughs> hey Tina for some of our listeners that are less familiar with para dressage sport can you tell people um, what your role as a classifier is um, or was uh, so that they can better understand uh, what that is and and how it's so important um, to para dressage and para equestrianism. Uh, yeah, I'll do my best. Um, yes, classification is crucial, and it's the very beginning for paradressage riders. And what the classifier does is measures 
their physical disability. Uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with their writing skill. It's done through uh, range of motion uh, or flexibility, uh, strength, and or coordination. So it has to be measurable physical disabilities that can be measured. And the whole point is to achieve fairness within the five grades. Paradressage has five grades. Grade one has the greatest uh, degree of physical disability. Grade five has the least degree of uh, physical disability. We also have visual uh, impairment uh, in grades four and five. Those are done by specialists. So I'm not in, I wasn't involved with that. That takes another specialty. But the whole point in classification is to promote fairness within each grade so that the grades are all on a level playing field as far as competing against each other. It should be just as hard for a grade one to achieve a 70 in their test as it is for a grade five to achieve a 70 in their test. Does that make sense? <laughs> I think I think that was a textbook definition. Did you read that out of a book? <laughs> well done. I think that was very, very well stated. But hey, you said something, um, you know, when you were talking about Jonathan before, and I was just thinking about it, you know, about how he got his start uh, with his local chapters and uh, and local GMOs. And, you know, just coming back from convention and meeting all the GMO representatives and the delegates and hearing what they're doing and the programs that they're running, you just realize how important the grassroots of the sport is to dressage as a whole. And that's dressage and that's paradressage and that's the equestrian world at large. And I just think that's Absolutely. so cool that that's so cool that Jonathan got his start there. I did it's another thing I didn't know about him. But he yes. was he was the biggest character and I always loved running into him and seeing him at shows. And yeah. uh and I I think uh, the the world is better for for Jonathan uh being in it and uh, and uh, you know, I, I certainly every time I think about paradressage, I think Jonathan would be, would be so proud of where the sport has gotten uh, to today. So tell oh, us, uh, tell us a little bit about um, where the USPEA is going in the future, and uh, and what the hopes and dreams are for the for um, USPEA. Well, okay, you know, when we first start, when Hope Hand first formed the United States Paraquestrian Association back in 2009, it was formed with two distinct missions. One was a permanent mission, and one was set as a temporary mission. And the permanent mission was to provide education both to the public on what is paradressage, who gets involved, who, who qualifies, and, and what's the definition of paradressage, meaning parallel, not paralyzed, um, parallel to dressage, and then also providing athlete-directed grants. That has always been our mission, and that will always continue to be our mission. Our second mission was set to be a temporary mission, and we set really a 10-year goal, and that was to serve as the affiliate until it was taken on by the parallel affiliate. U.S. Dressage Federation so that para would be under dressage uh, since they are parallel disciplines. 
That's awesome. And I'm I'm so excited, you know, as one of the executive board members in the sport um, that uh, we're we're having the conversation about the future integration of para equestrianism and para dressage into the fold of USDF. And it's coming full circle. And I'm really hopeful that in the not too distant future, USPEA will be a part of USDF. And we'll have the opportunity to really make the organization more inclusive um, and really help bring awareness, like you were saying before, um, about our para-athletes um, and really making that a level playing field for all of our athletes uh, that that love our sport of dressage um, the way that all of us do. Yes. And, you know, over the, the last several years, Ellie Brimmer has been, a, been involved in the USPEA and it's a tremendous help both as an athlete and then as a obviously an outstanding volunteer in the dressage community winning the uh, dressage volunteer of the year at the convention and so it's really been neat to have her come on board and get that athlete viewpoint and athlete push and um, as you said Jonathan was a character and he was a very strong competitor and he was he was definitely a persistent advocate uh, for parallel recognition and opportunity within dressage, you know, for paradressage riders. Yeah. And he loved he loved riding with them, learning from them, helping volunteering with them. And uh, we encourage all our athletes get involved locally, give back, uh, get to know your community. Um, they're a tremendous help to you. And you can be a tremendous help to the community. The work that you guys have done is is been amazing. And there's a lot of support and grants for para riders. That's right. There are. And, you know, USPEA has just um, reestablished our grants. And we have five different direct athlete grants trying to help advance the rider through the new and emerging stages of paradressage, starting with an initial classification grant. Sometimes athletes have to travel quite a distance, so we want to try to help offset that expense of travel and get them classified and then get them down um, center lane at recognized shows. Mm -hmm. And um, whether their goals are national or international, we want to get them started. We want to build that base. I love it. Now, we're already starting to look toward Paris. So what happens now with the athletes getting ready for the Olympics this coming year? Uh, well, obviously, this is a big year. We yeah. we, um, we have, um, I'm trying to count in my head, one, two uh, Wellington shows, uh, one Ocala show. We're going to be showing in Ocala uh, that will go towards selection. And then we will have Two final observations this year, one in Hagen, Germany, and uh, then we will fly directly back from that same panel of judges and have it at Tryon, North Carolina. And um, after that last U.S. competition, of course, there's competitions throughout Europe, uh, Canada, that uh, some of our riders go to and participate in, and they they all count towards the selection process. So uh, it will be an exciting year. We've got a lot of new horses, a few new riders. Um, so that's always wonderful. Plus our, our pairs that, ha- that are, have been doing great and we 
are cheering them on to continue to do great. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, um, I, I, I've been following the USPEA. I follow a lot of the FEI athletes um, that are representing our country. We have athletes abroad right now um, that are paradressage competitors competing in these CPEDIs and getting ready, um, you know, for the Paris Olympics and for these observation events. And it is really, really intense. And they are truly um, they're ambitious and they are yeah. fighting for those spots on our team. It's, it's really awesome to see. And, you know, I was at the Tryon CPEDI in October this, um, this year, and, um, I'm already getting ready for next year. So <laughs> I'm, I'm planning for it to be January 1st already. I'm like, well, last year, uh, but, uh, but no, meanwhile, we're still here in 2023. Um, but I was at the, I was at the CPEDI in October and um, and it was one of the first times that we uh, had a full U.S. team um, for paradressage, and there was a full team uh, represented from Canada. And yes. watching the athletes go down center line and seeing the teams there and watching the scores come in, it was a nail biter. There, it is a true competition, <laughs> and it's really exciting to see that that paradressage has become so competitive, and it yes. makes me think. You know, we're we're on the cusp um, of, you know, of Paris, but right, right behind it on the heels um, of the Paris Olympics are the L.A. 2028 Olympics. And we know that we want to go for gold when the Olympics come to home turf. And I guess I want to know what you would tell athletes, maybe athletes with disabilities that haven't gotten classified, that are curious about parasport, what would you tell them as um, as they're looking at the LA 2028 Olympics and Paralympics? What would you say to those guys? Well, I would say, number one, see if your disability falls within the guidelines. And if it does, contact Lorene Johnson at USEF and Look through, you know, on on our website, USPEA, on the USEF website, there's classification information. It's done through USEF, United States Equestrian Federation, but um, the information is on both websites. And get yourself classified and get yourself um, taking riding lessons and down, down center line, as we like to say. You know, USEF has done such a tremendous job over the last several years providing for our uh, elite riders with and, and higher developing for symposiums and clinics and even some grants, which we have never had um, or rarely had. Uh, in fact, when USPEA first started, we had to focus on funding our teams to World Games and getting to training camp for even the Paralympics. But now USEF has just done a wonderful job and um, under Loreen and Michelle Osseling and Holly now, Griffin and Will Will Connor and you know, um it's it's just been so exciting to see and uh, the the quality of horses has increased too. Uh it's mm-hmm. it's been amazing to see that. The scores have increased. But that has given USPEA now the ability to do what we've always wanted to do, which is to focus on those new and emerging athletes. And we also provide a virtual judging program. You don't even have to be classified. You can self-classify yourself. But we just want you starting, getting started, getting some feedback from judges 
how's my writing skills doing? How's, you know, how am I doing? Where am I at? And um, to work towards the first level in your grade with the novice test, and then working towards your first recognized show. But like I said, we've got grants, we've got virtual judging that we offer. And, um, you know, for those looking, Paris, uh, Paris is right away. L.A. is just down the road. Mm-hmm. Enjoy the sport and of paradressage. It, it, it's amazing. Tina, I could talk to you all day long, and this is way too much fun. And I know, I, I know I'm, I'm fighting for, for minutes here with you, but um, I'll take every single one of them. Um, I'm a competition organizer, and um, I organize a lot of competitions uh, that help get our athletes in the dressage world to the festival champions and to national championships and to finals um, and to CDI competitions. And one of the things that happened, um, I think it was a year ago now, maybe it's been two years, is that there was a rule change. And now all of the qualifiers for the national championships um, that are nationwide level three dressage shows now include para-dressage qualifying to also go to the U.S. Dressage Festival of Champions, which is our national championships for dressage and now para-dressage. Tell me a little bit about that integration and what you've heard from competitors and, and management and organizers about having the para competitors at shows. Well, I, I can tell you from the writer's perspective of show manager, I, I, I don't know the perspective of Walt. Let, let me just say that we were absolutely thrilled uh, that para was included with that and that there would be more opportunities for pairs to compete in different shows and it has opened it up, opened up more shows to us. We don't have a, a lot of pairs all over the U S so there, you may hold a class and there may be only one para or, or no pairs at the time, but that's what we're working on is to build that grassroots. And it's, it's really, you know, being a part of festival of champions has come full circle. Back in the day, um, I, mm, 15 years ago or so, we were part of that, and it was so wonderful. And um, it's so fantastic to be part of that again. My personal hope is that we will be able to open up additional classes uh, and include a novice class and an intermediate class, as well as the Grand Prix classes. So we have opportunities on the national level for riders at different riding skill levels to to have that national goal of going to Festival of Champions. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that it's been such a great integration and I'm thrilled to see the adoption um, of the paradressage community into or back into, I should say, the dressage world. Um, because really, you know, as we work to integrate paradressage into the USDF, um, as we look towards the future, um, that's what we need to be doing. And I think yeah. also, you know, we're we're so focused as an organization right now on the diversity, equity, and inclusion, the DEI aspects of our sport. 
sport. And um, and we need to we need to be sure that we look at our athletes with disabilities and give them the the same opportunities that our dressage athletes have. And I I would just say as a as a relatively experienced organizer um, and someone that organizes, you know, level two and level three and and four and five shows um, nationwide, if you're an organizer and you're curious about including paradressage classes in your competition and you have questions, please reach out to me. Um, And my information comes at the end of the show. I'd love to chat with you about uh, hosting uh, paradressage classes at your competition and what kind of considerations you should make for including them. But together, I think we have so much opportunity um, that is right here on the horizon for us with the Paris Olympics, but uh, even more so with the LA uh, Olympics and Paralympics are right behind it. And it would be so great to see our para-sport thriving in the United States. Tina, it was so, so much fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for giving us your time this evening. Yes, thank you, Reese and Noah. Just wonderful to talk to you guys and really appreciate you having me on and talking about paradressage. As you can tell, I could talk for hours. I love it. Tina, one more time. How can people get in touch with you if they have questions about para? You can get in touch with me at Tina at USPEA.org would be the best way to get a hold of me. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Tina, and happy holidays. Mm-hmm. Happy holidays. Well, Glenn here, founder of the Horse Radio Network and host of Horses in the Morning. One of the top requested segments we have gotten from listeners is about trailers and trailer safety. Brad Heath from Double D Trailers has agreed to help us with a five-part series on trailers that we're going to do one a month over the next five months. Brad is the owner of Double D Trailers with over 25 years of experience in horse trailer manufacturing and the equestrian industry. He also has his own podcast. We'll talk about that later. Today in part one, we're talking about the do's and don'ts of trailer hauling. And I think, Brad, when it, when somebody gets a brand new trailer and they never hauled a trailer before, it's terrifying, right? You probably see it with new owners all the time. We do. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Glenn. But our drivers will often roll up to... Uh, New owner, new buyer, never towed a trailer before. And I always tell them, I say, hey, just, you know, slip my driver 20 bucks and say, will you get in and ride with me and kind of give me some pointers. So that happens uh, fairly frequent. Yeah. And, you know, I think everybody, there was just a post on, on our auditor page about backing up. Everybody has, a, you know, you, you have to practice for a long time to feel like you've nailed the backing up part of a trailer. That's right. Yeah, you you really do. You know, I, we grew up on a farm and burning tobacco and things like that. So, it, you know, second nature for us. But if you've never done it, it does take a bit of practice. Well, let's talk about what's the number one mistake horse owners make when it comes to towing the trailer. Mm, I see a lot of unlevel trailers going up and down the road and particularly in gooseneck. Um you know, as we've manufactured over the years, the height of tow vehicles have continued to get taller and taller. You know, if you look at a 1995 Ford Chevy Dodge, whatever it is, and look at the height from the ground to the top of the tailgate, it you know, it might be 55 inches or whatever the number is. And during those uh, years, we built the trailer for the vehicles uh, during that period. But now with the vehicles being so much taller 
and folks having older trailers, they'll purchase a used trailer that's not really designed for these higher built vehicles. And so what you, and I'm sure you've seen them too. They're going down the road and yeah. And you think the horses are going to fall out the back. Yeah. Yeah, The the gooseneck is all jacked up and you know, we see it on bumper pulls too. Uh, I've seen the front end nosedived on the bumper pull or the front end is, you know, is jacked up. So, um, yeah, the trailer should be towed level. How do you uh, fix that with a gooseneck? I feel like it's easy. It's you know you can get you can get balls that you lo- are lower and things with the tagalongs, and and it, I feel like it's easier to fix that with them with a goosenecks. That's that's right. Uh, bumper pull is an easy adjustment for any vehicle with a gooseneck. You know, if you've got a trailer that I built in two thousand and one, and you're currently towing today with a. 2024 new whatever vehicle that's really high off the ground that 2001 trailer there is no adjustment to try to get it level with that tow vehicle because the problem is is when you let the front end of the trailer down so that it's level you're going to smack the tailgate right there's just not enough height there and so you have two options uh or three rather but one extend the coupler which raises the front end of the trailer, which we don't want. That throws more pressure on the back axle. It's going to cause a a lot of issues uh, long-term. Your other option would be to block the trailer axles. So you lift the entire trailer higher. Mm. And by doing so, you can gain more clearance and then try to level it out. Uh, the downside to that is you can lift the trailer and the, with the block in between the, the frame and the axles, but the fenders themselves, you can't, you typically can't lower those back down. They're often welded on or bolted on. So you end up seeing trailers if they've been lifted going down the road and there's this huge gap between the top of the tire and the bottom of the fender. And then your last option Buy a new trailer. Buy a new trailer. <laughs> you know, with the or an old truck. Or an other. old truck, you know, something that's lower, either a lower truck or a higher trailer. I mean, that's it. How about, yeah. uh, you know, I, next question is what are some warning signs uh, that a trailer is being towed incorrectly? And I think we all know the one, and that is you're driving down the highway, especially with tag alongs, you're going to see this, and it just gets squirrely on. It feels like you have a snake behind you. Uh, the trailers feels like it's all over the road. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a concern. We tend to build our trailers, um, not to insult, but idiot proof, so to speak, meaning that if you have a two horse bumper pull or a three horse bumper pull and you haul one horse in the very back end of the trailer, you're not going to get that negative tongue weight. So we position the axles under the assumption that at some point, either a horse is going to get loose by himself in there or somebody's going to haul him in the wrong stall. And so, you know, we just avoid that altogether. On the warning signs, um, we see the tires just wearing uneven and it will overheat the bearings on the back axle. If you're driving with the front end lifted up, you'll have that uneven tire wear. You can bend an axle. Uh, so you can really cause a lot of problems in doing so. And lastly, uh, if it's a bumper pull and the thing is nosedived, in other words, the front end is too low, it just pulls rough. You can feel all the bumps. Everything hits kind of hard. Vehicles just, you know, it, it's it's not comfy. Well, you brought up tires, Brad, and this is the th- mistake I see people make. I think that the RV community is actually more aware of this than the 
the horse trailer community, and that is your tires, right? We think, well, I don't drive the trailer very much. I drive it maybe, you know, 20 times in a year, so I'm not putting much wear on the tire. What they forget, especially in climates like Florida, is the dry rot that you still got five years in that tire, and you're probably going to have to replace it no matter how much you've driven on it. That that is absolutely correct. I had a client in California just uh, a couple months ago. You know, the trailer is built um, middle of the U.S. We have to haul it all the way across the country, and she was worried about a a couple thousand miles on the tires. And I said, what what you may not realize is that tires age out; they don't wear out. Average person, how many miles a year are you going to put? you know, put on a trailer 10,000, if that. And so you'll never wear the tread out. Uh, Each tire has a date code, which is the date that the tire was manufactured. And most of the companies that we work with, they recommend changing tires every four to five years. So as long as you keep the tires aired to the correct pressure, we see a lot of overinflated tires, a lot of underinflated tires. And while we're on the subject, if you run a trailer with an underinflated tire, you know, it's going to cause excess heat and do some things to, you know, the chemical makeup of the rubber that it shouldn't do. And then you arrive to point B and you put air in it and you're like, okay, well, that that's fine. Well, Mm, not really, because you've you've already damaged the sidewall of that tire, and that's where we see those blowouts occur long term. So keep the tires aired properly, check them each and every time, change them out every five years, and life will be much better. Very good. What's the, uh, there's a common belief that any vehicle can tow a horse trailer as long as the numbers match on paper. So I you know I look at the numbers for my truck, I look at the numbers for my trailer. Uh, and I think this is a big one, and, and we constantly see this one, right? And this is partly where we see the trucks going down the road looking like a V, uh, where the trailer's dragging the ground and the truck. You know, part of that is you have too much trailer for the truck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's just there's just not enough there. Uh, the, the You know, what we face is an uphill battle often as trailer designers. Clients will contact us and... It's not their fault. Vehicle manufacturers, as well as sales folks at vehicle dealerships, they all want to brag about how much their vehicle can pull. Oh, it'll tow it, that type thing. And Chevy or whatever the manufacturer is may advertise the tow vehicle will pull 13,000 pounds. Client says, well, how much does your trailer weigh? Uh, This one's about 5,500 with two horses. You're about 8,000. So they think, oh, wow, I can tow 13,000. I'm only hauling eight. Life is good. And, you know, unfortunately that's true, but not true because a load is only as strong as the weakest link in the equation. You can have a really, really, really strong trailer, a really, really, really powerful truck, but if the coupler hooking to things together is, you know, subpar and it breaks, that's the the weak link. And same thing in towing. Uh, The number that the manufacturers never really focus on, nor the salesperson at the dealership is not going to tell you this, is this little thing called payload and tongue weight. And that's really the, the weak link, the limiting factor for all tow vehicles uh, in, in towing. And I, I often use the analogy with clients. I said, just imagine you're, you're in your bedroom, you're getting ready to kind of rearrange things. The dresser is there and it's pretty heavy, but you, you might be able to slide it around. 
by yourself. So you could push it or you could pull it. What you probably can't do is pick one end of the dresser up and drag it. And that's essentially what your tow vehicle is doing. It could push or pull the trailer, but when you ask it to actually carry a lot of that weight as well as pull, that's where you start to run into problems. So uh, if the tongue weight is greater than what the vehicle manufacturer recommends, it's too much. Uh, it, it really is. And payload, we you know, people forget too. You have when you're taking a look at payload, whether it's an RV or a horse trailer, right? When you're taking a look at payload, you have to take everything into consideration. That's everybody in the vehicle. What's everybody mm-hmm. weigh? All your stuff, because you all carry too much stuff to the horse shows. All the stuff in the trailer, and that includes water. Water's heavy, right? Yeah. All of that stuff has to be taken into consideration, and then. I, I agree with you. I think the tongue weight or that payload capacity, those numbers are more important than what can I tell? They really are. I mean, yep. that, that's where it's at is in payload. We, we rarely look at the gross towing capability of the vehicle because if it's rated to carry the tongue weight, it's going to have the rating to pull it as well. And you're right on payload. It's the, the passengers, the driver, whatever's in the cab of the vehicle. If it's a truck, whatever's in the bed of the truck. Uh, plus the tongue weight of the trailer, because that weight is, is also there. So all of those things have to be factored in. And that leads us to the next thing that you have to worry about if you're overweight, right? If you're uh, what we call un- under-trucked. If you're under-trucked, then you got braking to think about. Uh, yeah. They, and everybody thinks, well, my trailer has brakes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, you know, the thing about uh, brakes, we... Uh, we just uh, went to the mountains this past week with the family and my wife is driving and I ask her, I'm a right seat driver. She probably didn't like it, but I asked her, I said, do you remember in uh, driver's ed uh, how they told you to gauge how close to follow another vehicle? And when I came along, it was a three second rule. So as the vehicle passed us a, a sign or a mark on the road, a thousand one, thousand two, thousand three. And if that vehicle slams on brakes, you have enough time, hopefully, to react to keep from eating the back end of of them up. Pulling a horse trailer, that's a lot more weight that you have to stop. It really is. So, um, you know, the, the best thing to do, in my opinion, is practice a little bit and figure out sort of what extra stopping distance that you will need uh, to keep from eating up the back end of someone else's vehicle. The trailers do have brakes. The tow vehicles have brakes. If the tow vehicle is rated to haul the amount of weight of the trailer and it's a good braking system on the trailer, uh, you'll certainly be able to stop it without issue. But it's not going to stop nearly as quickly as if you didn't have a trailer back there. So you just need to be aware um, of how much distance is going to take. So you just talked about going uphill and downhill. Are there any rules of thumb for going uphill and downhill? <laughs> going uphill well, is just get up the hill, but downhill seems to be the one that causes, uh, you know, your brakes to fry, right? Yeah. Going, yeah. going uphill, you know, push the, the pedal to the metal, yeah, so right. to speak, and uh, going downhill, you drag the brakes. No. Uh, again, we were in the mountains and I told my oldest daughter, she drove separately and I said, look, don't drag the brakes going down the mountains. You're just going to cook the things. It's going to warp the rotor. Uh, or catch on wild. fire. We've seen that happen too. Yep. Or catch on fire. I said, you have uh, a shifter in your car or in your truck. 
just use the lower gears, almost like driving it as a straight shift. So most vehicles today are, are not straight shifts, but they'll have a, an automatic or a manual mode in transmission. And that's exactly what you should be doing with your trailer. Use the the torque of that engine as you're going down the mountain to slow the vehicle down. Not the trailer brakes, not the truck brakes, just slow it down, put it in second gear, third gear, whatever it has to be. Uh, the engine's going to be humming, but that's okay. As long as you're not redlining the RPM, that's no problem at all. In the mountains, we're always glad we have the diesel engine because it does that. I mean, it's made to do that, right? That's, that's, right. that's what it's made for. And and there are a few times when hauling that we use the Jake brake too, you know, and that, that really does its job. It's there for yeah. a reason. Yeah. Yeah. What about uh, equalizer hitches or uh, they come by a number of different names? The bars you put on the trailer on a tag along to level it out and dis- uh, and weight distribution. Do you put those on for people? Do you recommend them? Do you help it, it, them with that? It depends on the tow vehicle. Nine times out of 10 on a bumper pull, yes. And and the reason for, if you go to the back of your tow vehicle, squat down on one knee, look underneath the bumper at the square receiver hitch where the ball slides in, there'll be a plate or a sticker typically on that hitch. And it'll have uh, three numbers or two numbers. It'll say weight carrying, C-A-R-R-Y-I-N-G, how much that it can pull and, or carry actually, and then uh, how much that it can tow. And the weight carrying will be broken down into two numbers with weight distribution and without. And most hitches, like a class three hitch, are they're going to be rated at around 750 pounds maybe of tongue weight without weight distribution. But if you add the weight distribution hitch, that number goes up to 12, 13, 1400 pounds. So even if you have enough capacity on the hitch to carry the tongue weight without adding those bars, it's still going to make the load more stable with the weight distribution system every time on every vehicle. Um, so and it'll make it, that highway thing where it gets squirrely behind you a lot less. You, you'll, yeah. you won't have the problem when the trucks pass you anymore. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It will improve the safety of your load all the way around. Final thoughts for this segment on hauling? Uh, you know, don't make the mistake that uh, two mistakes, three mistakes come to mind. One client picked up a trailer from us and got it home, backed it under the shelter, forgot it had an air conditioner on top and she <laughs> drugged the whole air conditioner off and smashed her shelter. So by the way, people, know, those are not cheap to replace. Yeah. <laughs> be, be careful yeah. on a new trailer like that and know your Eve height. I had a client a couple of years ago, she called and said, Hey, the, the, the trailer coupler is a bumper pull is messed up. Mine broke. I hooked it to the tow vehicle and never made it onto the highway. And it popped off the ball and thankfully the safety chains caught it and it drug it down in the dirt. And uh, if you hook the trailer to the ball correctly, it's impossible for it to pop off unless something physically breaks. She just didn't have it latched properly. And then the, the last uh, story I'll share with you years ago, my dad, uh, we did a show several hours away. And when we loaded up and ready to come home, he towed a gooseneck behind his vehicle. And it was about a three-hour trip when we arrived back to the factory and uh, started cranking the jack to lift the gooseneck off the ball. He had closed the coupler on top of the ball 
and it never went down around it. And oh, so he no. pulled a gooseneck for three hours sitting on top of the ball and praise God, it didn't jump off. Cause oh, my would, God. That would have been a disaster. Yeah. You know, I, I look at those gooseneck chains, and I'm thinking, this gooseneck, if it pops off, those chains ain't doing nothing here. No. We're, no. Yeah. <laughs> It'll do it. On, I did have a trailer. We had a hitch break years ago on a, on a tag-along trailer. No horses inside. And the chains caught it. The chains do work on tagalongs i'm not sure they were going to work on a gooseneck to be honest i I don't know that's a lot of weight (laughs) it's going to make a mess uh the chains will hold i think they're thirty thousand pound capacity chains assuming they're tied to something in the truck that's also going to hold but it typically makes a mess you know with that gooseneck and all over the place your tailgate's gone and you know (laughs) smack the back of the the cab of the truck but, but hopefully it will keep it in the bed of the truck and out of someone else's you know windshield or create a uh even larger accident well this has been great we're going to do a lot more on trailers and trailer safety and maintenance and all of that stuff in the future but being that this is our first one i tell us a little bit about double d for i know a lot of people on the east coast know double d but tell us a little bit about double d trailers yeah, we started uh, a retail store in 1994, my dad and I, and, and everything horse or cattle and farm equipment you could think of, horse trailers being one of the many products that we sold. And, uh, you know, at some point we got the Brainiac idea of thinking, we think we can just build these things rather than buying other brands. So we uh, convinced the bank to give us a loan to build horse trailers in Pink Hill, North Carolina. <laughs> and we started manufacturing. That uh, sounds that like was, a big city there. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Well, at that time, we didn't have a stoplight, but eventually we <laughs> did get one stoplight. So it's growing. You know, It's, it's a growing metropolis. And we manufactured there from 97 through about uh, 2009, uh, a steel frame galvanil product. In fact, we just had a client from Canada, Kelly uh, Gahikada. She won't mind us uh, sharing that. She sent an email uh, one day last week and said, hey, just wanted to give a shout out to you guys. I've still got my 2006 uh, living quarter. Looks great. It's a steel frame galvanized skin trailer. The thing's going on 18 years old. And then we just had another client post an, an old one like that. So those things are, are quite durable. They hold up well. Uh, in 2009, we expanded our manufacturing to a much larger facility and sort of changed up the way we build trailers today with the Z-Frame technology. And in 2012, we changed uh, manufacturing again and moved from North Carolina to a more centralized location in the U.S. just for nationwide distribution. And so since January of 2012, all trailers have been built in Manawa, Wisconsin. So everything ships from Wisconsin. Oh, wow. That's yeah. terrific. And you yeah. have everything, bumper pulls, goosenecks, uh, straight loads, you know, straight slant loads, all things. Yeah. yeah. Living yeah, quarters. We have, we have patents on the, the rear safe tag compartment. We'll talk about those things and the reverse load and, um, living quarters, we do you know quite a few of those. So if you can think of it, we can probably build it, or more than likely we have. Very good. Where can they find uh, your website and you know, dealers? No dealers. Everything's factory direct. Uh, we've always done that. We Every single person that we've ever sold to, we know who they are, what their name is, where they live. And, you know, we've, we've got that personal connection. If they have a problem with it, we're the ones that they call and 
you know, we, we take care of it. So yeah, just jump on our site, doubledtrailers.com. It's all on there. And for uh, your all podcast listeners listening to this, and Brad does one, so give us a quick, quick plug for your podcast. Yeah, check out uh, the Horse Trailer Post podcast. We do one every two weeks, a new episode. And, you know, I've had the privilege of interviewing just a, a lot of uh, interesting and smart people all across the world. And uh, it, it's quite fascinating. Things that I had never heard of or thought about. My daughter is the one that schedules all that, my oldest daughter. And so, uh, she does a fantastic job putting all that together. Well, welcome to my world, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It's doubledtrailers.com. Thanks, Brad. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Well, tonight, I am so thrilled to have my friend Ellie Brimmer on the show. She was just the United States Dressage Federation Volunteer of the Year. It is quite an honor. Ellie, welcome back to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me again. I always enjoy being on. Well, we love having you. You've been such a great, just part of our show. And this is such an honor. So first of all, for people who don't know you, Ellie, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you and Timmy, your dog and and your horse Mm -hmm. and everybody. Tell us about yourself. Yeah. So um, I live in Wellington, Florida. I am a grade two para rider. I have um, a horse. She's a Danish warm blood chestnut mare, and her full name is Langinger's Crack. I love it, but we call her Cracky in the barn. <laughs> and then I have um, a little rescue dog from Danny and Ron's Rescue. I have to plug them. His name's Timmy. He's a little nine-pound chihuahua. <laughs> so cute. And he is my little uh, ring steward assistant in training. He has, oh he has big shoes to fill. But yes, oh, yeah, we're thrilled to have him. <laughs> Ellie, Ellie, you were just named the USDF Volunteer of the Year. Um, and Adam Pollock at White Fences in, uh, in Loxahatchee in Florida uh, nominated you. Tell us a little bit about your connection to Adam's shows at White Fences. And, uh, and I mean, you're a fixture there. Tell us about it. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I moved down here full time about like, 2014 and you know I'd been on showing and stuff like that and one one year I can't remember when Adam just asked me if I would help and I said yes and so it kind of snowballed <laughs> from there um but I've that. been at least I've been at least volunteering for five I want to say at least five years solid and um you know I always I, my everybody has their jobs that they like and I'm I'm not a scribe that stresses me out way too much Um, so (laughs) the job that I prefer is ring stewarding. So that's what I normally do. And he usually puts me at ring one. So so all the riders kind of know where that's, I'm, that's where I'm going to be. And so my job is equipment checking and, um, and I really enjoy it because it's, it's not a super hard job because you're just kind of the first line of defense. If you see something weird, you call the TD over. And so it's also, you know, not, not your fault either. So if something goes wrong, so it's always kind of, and I learn a lot in that position. I get to see a lot, a lot of rides and I get to see a lot of different horses and a lot of different coaching. So um, I'm very happy to do it and very grateful for the award. I certainly wasn't expecting it, but it's always nice to be recognized. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as a competitor, uh, when I was riding back in the day, 
I think, you know, we had a couple people that were just fixtures at every single show. And there was something really comforting about coming out of the arena or even going into the arena and seeing that person uh, that was, you know, sending you in or that was doing the bit check as you came out. And, you know, and it was like, oh, okay, I made it to that point of the ride. And I can just kind of shoot the breeze for a second. And this is somebody I know. So um, it's so important that we have really, really uh, good volunteers at our shows. And so thank you again for uh, for everything that you do for White Fences and for all their shows and for our sport as a whole. But beyond being a volunteer, you're also an active competitor. And this year, I think you were uh, you were added to the USEF Board of Directors. Tell us about your role with uh, with USEF. Yes, yes. So I, um, because of the U.S. Paralympic and Olympic Committee merger, um, USEF had to have a dedicated board seat for a para um, para athlete, and so I got that position for the para dressage seat, if you will. And um, you know, I'm really happy to be representing my group, and I really think um, we bring important things to the table. For example. Um, things that have helped us is like I w- we passed a rule recently to allow eventing to have an opportunity test. And so I was like thinking about it. I'm like, okay, so why can't para have its own opportunity test? So now we have that rule um, going through the legislation process. And I really hope that it passes because it's my, uh, my recent pet project. And so I'm on um, the executive board. So it's really neat to kind of see things at a high level. And then um, I'm also on the Paris Sports Committee. I'm also on the hearing committee, which is very stressful. But um, I'm I'm yeah. glad to do it. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, it, that, this all is volunteerism. And, and Ali, tell yeah. us a little bit about, like, I mean, again, I've kind of met you, Noah, through... Uh, USF. I actually we've met way before. I can't remember mm-hmm. when we met and <laughs> became friends. But tell us a little bit about. I mean, these are important committees, but also, what is it like to serve serve on these committees? Well, you know, it's really interesting because you get to you get to meet people from all different disciplines. So people are coming at rules and potential problems and different ways forward from all sorts of different angles and advocacies. So it's really neat to see people come together to a general conclusion, you know, and kind of see how, um, you know, you can look at the rule change processes and see how different Mm -hmm. proposals evolve based on different people's inputs. And so I think it's a really exciting time to be involved in USCF. I think they're really pushing towards a growth moment and getting more of the general public interested and engaged with horse sports. So I'm really excited to be a part of it. Ellie, what would you tell people um, that are athletes with disabilities or curious athletes um, that, you know, might be interested in paradressage? What would you tell them about how to take their first steps to get involved with our sport? Yes. Um, well, you know, a USPEA, which is a paraquestrian association that I'm also on the board of, we just revamped our website. And so we've been working on establishing kind of um, revamping our one-on-one documents to give people a guideline of how, how to get started in paradressage. And, you know, the classification process can be a little um, daunting. And so that's why we try to have resources for people to reach out and figure out the classification process, because 
you know, it's hard to say how to proceed until you're sure of what grade you are because there's a big difference between what you might need as a grade one versus a grade five. And, you know, even if you end up, you might be disabled, but your disability might not be classifiable. But if you go through the classification process, you might be able to come away um, with a better understanding of some compensating aids that could help your riding as well. One of the things I was thinking about as you were talking about classification and uh, and being classifiable is what if you're yeah. an athlete that um, that has a, a, um, a disease um, or something that is progressive? Can you change classifications over time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so classifications can change over time. Um, for example, I have cerebral palsy. And so I've changed grades a couple times because I'm just kind of also hard to classify as well, which is why they have, when you have an international classification, you have two classifiers working on you and deciding um, what rating you are, so to speak. And so it definitely changes. Um, for example, MS is a common one where things um, things really change. So, you know, you have to kind of look at it that way. And so kind of always be evaluating where you're at and the classifiers will watch you at the major international events. And if they think you need to be reevaluated, you'll get reevaluated. Just going to ask you, the process isn't painful, right? Like it's not a painful. No, process. no. It's yeah. like, um, <laughs> it's, it's like going in for a, a physical, it's like going okay. in for a physical therapy session. So, oh, right. Um, right. No one's going to hurt you. It's just, they have to figure out. Yeah. No, it's, it's no. Process. So they just do like, at least for me with cerebral palsy, they do a lot of, um, like balance, coordination, range of motion tests mm -hmm. to see how, um, like how I would function. Does that's just, test designed to see how I would function on the horse because, um, you know, if I couldn't raise my hands above my head, it would be a problem, but it shouldn't mm -hmm. affect my riding. Right. So, right. So Ellie, tell us about your mare, Cracky. She's awesome. Yes, Cracky. Oh, I love her to death. <laughs> um, she's, she's a chestnut, um, mare. She came from Denmark. Um, that's the and end of the I've story. You don't have to say anything kind. else. That's kind. I love it. I love it. I'm married to a redhead, so I love I love a redhead. I love a chestnut mare. I love a chestnut gelding. I love a chestnut. I like a chestnut. I get love it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, keep and, going. You know, she's such a good trier. Um, unfortunately, last year she developed a bone bruise, and so that's been a very um, slow rehab process because I only have the one horse, and I don't want to risk mm -hmm. rushing anything. And so we're just about back to normal. Um, I'm hopefully going to take her actually over to White Fences next week and do a little non-compete schooling so awesome. we can be rem reminded of our job. And, <laughs> um, and so then just kind of go from there and play it by ear and, and hopefully hit some of the CPDIs later in the season. I think January will just come up a hair too fast because mm -hmm. I had also, I gotten reclassified, so I have to... Um, finish doing my new freestyle. So cool. That's yeah. So Paris is on the horizon and mm -hmm. you know, it, it's one of these things um, that I, I guess maybe I, I'm, I look at our own riders in our backyard and in, in the United States and in Canada, and I'm, I'm totally aware of, of who the players are there, but uh, who are you looking at? Who's a contender for the Paris games? Who do you think is going to make it on the podium? Right now, it's really interesting because I think like able-bodied and para are in the same sport. I think some people, you know, may debut newer horses or have newer combinations that are really going to mm. come together. So I, I think I'm very excited. 
I'm very grateful that I'm living down in Wellington. I think it's going to be a really interesting season to see how people develop and progress. And I think, you know, nothing is set in stone yet. It'll be, I think we'll have a better picture by the end of season, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just excited about, about ah. the opportunities. And, and you dodged you know, you everybody... that question hard. <laughs> yeah. Smart. She's a diplomat. Uh-huh. Well played, I love well it. <laughs> but I but love it's it. all true. It's true. It's, it's going to yeah. be a really, I think, I think for all of us, it's going to be a heck of a season. I can't wait. Yes. I'm so excited. Well, Ellie, I, I can't wait to see you at White Fences Ring One because I always love seeing oh, you. Yes. And, um, we can't thank you enough for all you do for our sport. And, um, you, you really, you really are just, just a bright light and we're so thankful. Yeah. So we wish you a very happy holidays, but before thank we let you, you go, Oh girl, you're not going. What are you doing <laughs> for right. Christmas? What do you, what do you have right, to well, for Christmas or the holidays? Well, Christmas is usually pretty quiet. Um, my mom is down here, so her, she and I'll probably get together on Christmas Eve, usually watch a Christmas movie. My personal favorite is a Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh, stop and... it. Yes. Now we're talking. <laughs> yep. And then, um, you know, and then the horses get some time off because they deserve a holiday too. And we'll go out and feed them treats and all that. So yep. it's a nice little mini vacation before we get back to work again. I love it. I love it. A Muppet, Muppet Christmas Carol. I'm trying to think of my... Oh man, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I, I, we always watch Die Hard. Just saying. Oh, <laughs> Die Hard is a classic. I, I it's can't a, it's Die a Hard is movie. a Christmas movie. Thank it's you. It's a Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah, Travis and I seem to always watch it on Christmas. It's a Christmas movie. So, Noah, yeah. do you? Do, are you into the Christmas movies? Like, got one for us? Oh my gosh, it's been a hot minute since uh, since I saw any Christmas movies. Um, but I I feel like one of the Clark Griswold movies. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, um, Christmas Vacation. That Christmas one. Vacation. Yep. That's and Paul, our producer, just chimed in. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> Paul is chiming in. He's in here. I like. I, we already we watched that over Thanksgiving. Actually, it was on, <laughs> and then my family and I we all watched it. It was awesome. That is one that you stop and watch at the holiday season. Yeah. You just have to. <laughs> like, Christmas. Yeah. Like football. National Lampoon's Vacation. It, it became National Lampoon's Vacation. Check check. Well, I love it. Well, Ellie, I hope you have a very merry Christmas your mom as well she's a friend of mine too and she's wonderful and uh, Mm -hmm. i can't wait to see you in wellington and we're gonna all we're gonna all uh just kind of watch what how the season unfolds it's really gonna be exciting Uh, i know it's uh it's exciting times for sure (laughs) well ellie have a great one you too Everybody, feel free to send us emails and Facebook shoutouts. We love it. And if you're in California, say hi to Noah this week while he's at Thermal. I know he'd love it. So we can't wait for our next show in a few weeks. You can find our show notes and links to today's guests on our page at horseradionetwork.com. Search Dressage Radio Show. Like us on Facebook. Just search for Dressage Radio Show. You can also follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio. My website is maplecrestfarmky.com and my email is reese at horseradionetwork.com. You can reach Noah when he's not on an airplane at region6dir at usdf.org. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors, Kentucky Performance Products. And if you'd like to support our show and the Horse Radio Network, you can do that through the auditor page found at horseradionetwork.com. Happy holidays, whether you're celebrating the Festival of Lights or you're trying not to burn the Christmas tree down. We hope you have wonderful holidays with your friends and family. And thanks for tuning in.